I think many of you read novels, right? If you are a reader of novels, you, uh, you've probably experienced this thing that happens, a temptation as you're getting into the plot, and particularly as the plot begins to speed up, moving towards its climax, you want to flip to the last page and find out how <laughs> is this going to work out? Uh, will the, this, the protagonist, the hero, survive? You, you want to know. Um, usually you should withstand that temptation. It, it's better for the story. It's just better for the whole experience. We are not reading a novel. We have been going through an epistle, a letter in the scriptures. So we are permitted to jump to the end. Uh, and we are in the final chapter of 2 Corinthians. But we are going to start today by looking at the very last sentence of this letter. The sentence to which the letter is moving. And it's familiar. I expect if you uh, worship with us regularly, you've memorized it because our service also ends with it. It's a blessing. The shorthand name for this blessing is the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, uh, when we're speaking it to each other, we make it plural. Be with us all. Like 90% of what's in that booklet, 90% of our liturgy comes straight out of the scriptures. Often we don't know, we don't recognize, oh, I know that's from the Bible, I don't know where it is. And so it's nice to stumble on it in the text and have that realization. Now, just as we use it in conclusion to our worship, where it, where it occupies its place, in the context here, in the scripture, it is also a concluding blessing. That's the work it does. From the time that this letter was first read in Corinth uh, to when it was copied, the letter was copied, uh, this has been a part of the church. It's been part of the church's worship. These words or others based on them have been part of concluding blessing. So that's 2,000 years, this sentence has occupied an important place. We are going to think about why that's the case. Why a sentence like this would be so crucial in worship. Uh, and why it occupies this place in the letter. And once we establish that, then we're going to back our way into chapter 13 to the, the last movement of the letter as we finish 2 Corinthians. Which, We've been a long time on this letter. Started it in the, I think it was at the end of fall. No, we're in fall, the end of spring. So what Paul blesses them with, what he wishes for them as an end to his thoughts here, as a, a conclusion to his thoughts, it's also an end in a, a bigger sense, the fullest sense of that word. Paul has in mind here, the end of the journey. The end to which all this is leading. The telos, if you like Greek words. That means the completion. The fulfillment. The perfection. It's the state of full arrival. It's the state of being 
for which God made mankind, to which his work and his purposes are leading, to which his plan is moving. So it's as much an, an identity and a state of being as it is uh, somewhere we arrive. It's not just an end in that sense. It's, it's the fullness. So it's an end in all those things. It's an end in who you are, what you are, where you are, what you do, all of that, all that where we're moving will take reference from God. It will have reference to God. Every area of our life, that's where we're going. He is above all things. In Him, all things hold together. That is the state of the kingdom. Um, if you've been going through, doing uh, the reading of the New Testament, this week we read through Hebrews. We heard in Hebrews too. As it is, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see him now crowned with glory because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, we might not taste death. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So when we say the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's that grace that we stand in, in which we will continue to stand, what we will enjoy, the life of God, so because of suffering and death, because of his suffering and death, Jesus stands crowned, and we stand in forgiveness. That's the grace we stand in. Not to be condemned for the vicious selfishness that we continually practice. Not to be, not to be standing in that. He is ruling, and we're in his good graces. We're in the good graces of the ruler of all. Shockingly, we're in his good graces and we shall be forever. Well, the end, this end to which all things are moving, the end that Paul has in mind here, the end that he blesses the Corinthians with, it's also inseparable from the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. This is not God responding to our attractiveness. This is the agape of God. This is a quality that is not in us by nature. It's the love proper to God. Um, it has nothing to do with preserving our species, the kind of loves that we often operate in that everyone uh, has access to by nature. Affection, parents for children. Children for parents, siblings, family groupings. It's not that. It doesn't come from attractiveness or mutual benefit. Agape is not in response to anything that's offered. Anything attractive, anything lovable. It is God's own self-giving love. C.S. Lewis says, uh, he's on the mind. C.S. Lewis says, agape 
is wholly disinterested and desires what is simply best for the beloved. In a man, it enables him to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior, the sneering. We could add our spouse, our children. Finally, he says, by high paradox, God enables men to have a gift love toward himself, to freely offer back to him our will. So love that comes from him, places in us that we might offer back ourselves, which we would not do by nature. It is implanted by God to give ourselves to him and to seek the good of each other. And that will be a primary feature of our end, the end towards which we are moving. And we, we know that this, this life-altering, because it is, it is not natural, this gift of God comes because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's effected. That is, it's brought to us. It, it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The koinonia. Uh, it's a funny word. If you were around in the late 70s and early 80s, do you remember that? Koinonia fellowships? It was uh, kind of this movement Christians living in compounds or buying up property next to each other and farming together. We were part of a church when I was a kid that was big into that. Anytime I see the word, it just, that comes back to me. But koinonia, it means participation in, communion with, fellowship. It means, it means sharing in, being part of. That's what the, the hippies were going for. The scripture tells us that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the agape of God, comes to us by that participation in Him, the Holy Spirit. So it means, it's by means of the Holy Spirit in a person that you receive His forgiveness applied to you, applied to your heart. It's by Him, it's by His Holy Spirit in you that the chains are broken. The chains that bind you. It's by Him that your heart is freed from bitterness and unforgiveness, from resentment. It's by the Spirit of God that His character shapes desires in us, shapes your thoughts. Shaping those thoughts, turning, turning them from the self-obsession, which is ours by nature. The Spirit of God bringing who He is in us, loosening our hold on self-love, which is 100% natural, and giving to us a new nature in God. And it's in that that we'll live and move and have our being forever. 
So as you're probably sensing, we're talking about the Spirit applying this in us so we can have fellowship with God. It is also, it's this fellowship and communion with God's Holy Spirit bringing His nature to us that allows a person to live like Jesus towards other people. We cannot do that by our own nature. We have to have the Spirit giving the love of God to us so that we can live like Jesus towards other people. So without the Spirit giving us agape, we are in trouble. I mean, be honest with yourself. By nature, by your flesh, you have some very unattractive qualities. You have some very selfish impulses towards the people around you, including the people in your own household. You may have exhibited those selfish qualities this morning. And the natural loves, the loves that are reflections, also gifts from God, but they're reflections of His love, the natural loves like affection, friendship, arrows, they only carry us so far. And they don't carry you very far when the claims of the self get involved. And the claims of the other get involved. So one of the amazing parts of the end of our journey, the banquet, everlasting, is that God's character will be fully operative in us. We fully applied because we shall be like him for we'll see him as he is. Scripture tells us we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We shall be like him. His character in us. Oh, that is, don't you long for that? <laughs> to, to be transformed. But it's by the power of unbroken fellowship with him. With his Holy Spirit that we'll have agape community with each other. It's Him in us in unbroken fellowship that heaven and the everlasting can take on other, other meanings, uh, other relationships. So it's to that end then. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the agape of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that's what Paul is urging the Corinthians to have in mind. It's what he blesses them with as he concludes his letter. So with that established, the end in mind, we can back in to the chapter. We can back into how the letter wraps up. And, and so we can see the weight of his warnings. Because the letter ends with some heavy warnings. When Paul comes to Corinth for the third time, verse 1, there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a sorting out of this community. There's going to be an ordering. There's going to be an evaluating. So let's take note of some of the phrases scattered through the chapter here. Moving through. He says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Charge, evidence, witness. Verse 2, I will not spare them. I will not let them off. Verse 3, since you seek proof. Verse 4, he says, in dealing with you, 
We will do so by the power of God. Verse 5, he says, examine or scrutinize yourselves to see whether you're holding to your faith or to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Put yourself to the proof. Put yourself to the test. Put yourself to the judgment. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? Verses 6 and 7, there's more on testing. Verse 8, we, Paul and his companions, cannot do anything against the truth. That is, do anything. That is, we cannot act. We cannot exercise uh, power against the truth. And then all this, verse 10, it's for your edification. It's for your upbuilding, not your destruction. Do you hear these words, there's a, there's a theme here. It's reckoning. All of these concepts have to do with reckoning and judgment. So when Paul comes to Corinth to put things in order, there's going to be reckoning and judgment. And it's going to be done in accordance with the truth. And it's going to be for the edification of the church. It's going to be for the purification of the church that we prayed for in the collect this morning. It's going to be for the, the building up, the sorting out of the church so that that end will be realized. There will be movement towards the end. God is going to exercise his power through his servant Paul to move the church of Corinth towards the end for which they were redeemed. Clearly, God's people, and especially the leaders of the church, they have to act in agreement with the gospel. In agreement with who God is, with what he's doing. So any claims to, to give life or offer life that are outside of God's word, outside of what he's done once and for all, those are illegitimate in the church. They're going to be pulled out. They're going to be excised. The gospel is how the church is evaluated. The gospel, God's word, is how the church is evaluated. It's how it's reckoned. It's how it's measured. It's how any church is judged. And that's an unchanging standard that applies in every culture, at all times, all places. So, say that another way. What we shall be in the eternal kingdom of God, the end for which we were redeemed, it has to shape how we do things now. So God's work of construction, God's work of building, it's done according to God's plan for his people. And it takes shape in us as we hold that end in mind. If we fail to hold the end in mind, it will not have effect on us. It will not affect the decisions that we make. So why would you work against, you think about this personally, why would you work against what you're going to be? That wonderful design that you were made for, 
why would you kick against the glory that you were made for? The measure is the end. The measure's the fulfillment. Uh, when we think about when we think about a, a horse, let's say, what a we're going to evaluate a horse, what it should be like. We don't look at a, a gangly foal that's falling all over itself. We look at secretariat. We look at a thoroughbred. What, is, what should a horse be like? That. We're not looking at the, the undeveloped. We're not looking at the potential, what it could be. We're looking at where it's going, the end. When we think about an athlete, when an athlete is learning to run, we don't just say, just do what's natural. Just, you know, run however it feels. We look at an Olympic athlete who has, who's been trained, who has maximized the potential of a human body to move quickly, and we emulate that. We imitate. We imitate the, the end. And so it's according to the end in mind that we evaluate and we judge. So now note, Paul says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. These Christians in Corinth, and this is to us as well, they are to consider how, how we're living relative to how we will live. Let the end let the end be a measure, let the end be a way to test, to evaluate how we are now. And I'll note this, this is not something we do to each other. Examine yourselves, test yourselves. As Paul is coming to Corinth, these are warnings to individual people. And so I want to ask some hard questions here and invite you to do this. How much do I live in thankfulness for the grace of God that saves me from destruction? How much does thankfulness enter my thought that God has saved me from the consequences of my sin that I commit continually? Do I love God? Do I want to give my life to him? Do I want, because of who he is and because of what he's done, do I want to give my life to him? Do I want to yield to him? Does God's ever-giving love affect me? And do I extend love to others? Without requiring their good behavior, let that one sink in. Do I extend God's giving love to others without requiring their good behavior? Do I participate in conversation with God, talking to Him, listening for Him? receiving his word, which he's spoken and is always speaking, and do I care what he has to say? Do I care? Does the fact that Christ is in me change what I want 
Change what I do, change what I say. There are more questions we could ask to examine. How we are relative to what we shall be. If you are answering these questions with some distress, you're feeling the gap, take heart. <laughs> take heart. Uh, that's good. Because only one only one who has accepted the gospel, only one who has believed the grace of Christ Jesus will feel sorrow at all. We'll feel that uh, taking God's grace and mercy for granted is something that should be addressed. We'll feel this ought to change in me. I am not content. We call this holy discontent. Favorite theme of the Puritans. I am not what I want to be because I am not what God is making me to be. I am not yet what I shall enjoy. And I want that. So only if you know God has given you a gift, and this is the way with all kinds of gifts, only if you know that you have been given a gift will you feel shame at misusing it. Will you feel uh, embarrassed for squandering and treating it with dishonor. God has given you his love and his grace, and what do we do with it? If that affects you with some distress, that's a good mark. Receive that, because it's an encouragement from him. There's another kind of distress upon examination. You may find that you understand these concepts intellectually, but not experientially. You may find that, yeah, I want the grace of Jesus. I want the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. I understand what you're saying, but this is not a state of being that I am familiar with. This has not been part of my experience of life. If that is the case, then I want to invite you to ask God even at this moment right now, for that. Ask the help of his spirit to receive that. Because to understand and recognize your lack is a gift from God. You can fuzz out now and ignore the rest of what I say. Have dealings with God. Ask. It is, he is giving an invitation for you to receive his forgiveness, to receive his love, to receive his life in you and enjoy fellowship with him in the spirit. He wants that for you. But if your answer to these questions of examination is something like, eh, I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered. then it may well be you are not in Christ and that Christ is not in you. If you are unmoved by the mercy of God, you're unmoved by the love of God, unaffected by your selfishness 
towards him and towards others, then it is time for you to be honest with yourself. Um, there, there is no help for anyone without honesty. Just be honest. Um, you may find that you do not want the Christian life and that you want to move more fully into um, a life given to yourself. Just be honest about that. Stop playing. It does, none, it does none of us good, especially does you no good, to just pretend. So finally, a word about urgency. So the Corinthians who received this letter, they knew that judgment was coming. They, they recognized that God's judgment would be coming to their church when Paul arrived so in the person of the apostle, God would be exercising judgment, and that brought urgency. It produced a powerful impulse to self-examination because if, if a verdict is going to be pronounced on the things I just talked about, if a verdict is going to be pronounced, it is urgent to resolve it, right? But for us, judgment feels distant, the, the reckoning. It feels so distant. It feels even unreal. Even when we read about it in the scriptures. Oh, it was 2,000 years ago. They thought it was imminent. They just, it can feel far off. And so we don't talk about it. We don't talk. You, you may have been uncomfortable from the first moment I said judgment. It's really, it is unpopular. We don't talk about the last judgment. It is unfashionable. Christ's second coming. It's unfashionable. So we generally, Christians generally live as functional atheists on this point of doctrine. We pronounce it, we speak it in the creed every week. He will come to judge the living and the dead. We keep that at a distance. But one of the reasons that we declare it continually is it is a core part of our worldview. It's a core part of what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus the King is going to, who now sits on the throne, is going to establish perfect order on the earth, is going to make a reckoning and sort things out. He will come. He's going to set things right. There's going to be justice. Finally, he's going to be with us forever and we are going to experience the ongoing grace of God, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If we keep it at a distance, Christ's second coming, if we do not allow the banquet to enter our thoughts, we become like these, these people. The way... The master said, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited deemed themselves unworthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. My banquet will be full. The Lord is determined to fill the everlasting kingdom. But some deem themselves unworthy. If we 
if we keep that reality, the glories and the joy and the delights and the fellowship with God at a distance, we keep that final state out of sight, then it has no effect on us. The good that it, for which it was given, knowledge of that. He didn't have to give us knowledge of that. He did not have to reveal what's coming, right? It was his pleasure to reveal it. But he didn't have to. Most religions don't have a concept of what is after. It was the Lord's delight to tell us what he's doing, the goodness that we're coming to, so that it would impact us, so we would long for it. So seeking to preserve our delicate psyches from discomfort, we cut ourselves off from hope. We cut ourselves off from one of the ways God has given and prescribed to correct our vision of life. It's part of our worldview. Let's allow it to do its work in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us this letter to the Corinthian church for taking a terrible situation where the, the enemy had uh, wreaked havoc and using it as an occasion to speak to your church throughout the ages. Thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel that comes on every page of this letter. And we pray that you'd give us a willingness to embrace the goodness that you speak to us through your word. The invitation the invitation to enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name.